Sabira podcast. Research matters. Hello, everyone. My name is Dr. Sin Wong Chong. I'm a lecturer in TESOL at Queen's University, Belfast. And I'm also the regional representative of Northern Ireland at the ECR network at BERA. And today we're continuing our mini podcast series on alternative research methods in higher education. And today I'm joined by Elke from the Education University of Hong Kong to talk about her own PhD research. So Elke, welcome. Thank you. Um, do you mind saying a few words about yourself? Sure. Yeah. So as uh, Sinwang just said, um, I am a lecturer at the Education University of Hong Kong. Uh, so I've worked in the field of international education um, in Europe, Africa and Asia. And I'm currently also uh, doing my PhD at UCL, the Institute of Education. And uh, it's through my PhD that I actually got connected to BERA and their Early Career Researchers uh, Network. So it's a pleasure to be here today with you, uh, Sinwang. Thank you, Elke. Um, I just want to reiterate, um, you know, the, the whole purpose of this podcast series is really to help PhD students, uh, early career researchers to navigate the whole research process during the whole COVID thing. And I think we face a lot of challenges in data collection and it motivates us to rethink what data collection is, what kind of data are really available at our disposal. So today, Elke is going to share a little bit about her research. So why don't we start by talking about the focus of your research? I've got two foci, actually. So one focus is on thinking about how we can diversify the way we perceive and do research uh, in education. And that's where there's a whole lot of theoretical and, and philosophical work. Uh, that I'm trying to do. And then the other focus is on curriculum. And that's focused on one uh, case study that I'm doing of uh, an alternative curriculum in one uh, school uh, in Hong Kong. So just as a, the, the small background story behind this is, this is a bit of a strange combination maybe, uh, because there's an empirical and a philosophical element. I think these things kind of emerged together and came from yeah, this being motivated by the notion of crises. And this was before the pandemic started. So I started my, my PhD in um, uh, 2019. Um, so we were already surrounded by discourses of crisis. And my idea was always, well, crisis is not necessarily a problem, but can also be an opportunity to stop and think and question what we're doing. And... Those questions are usually informed by reflections on what does it mean to be human in this world? What does human flourishing means? And for me, uh, as a scholar, and, and especially a scholar in the field of education, I feel that it's it's part of our responsibility to, to think about these things. And that means that we think about not just what we're researching, but also how we're going to research this, how we're going to approach our research. So that out of those concerns came my two foci, I would say. All right, great. I really like how you introduce your um, research interests in areas. They are really closely related to what you're doing, to the context that you're in. So I think it's very good for other maybe ECRs or PGR students to really think about when they are conducting their, their, their research. It, ha it can be something very close to you, uh, something 
very maybe maybe related to what you're working or the group of stakeholders that you are associated with. So let's uh, connect your research focuses with research methodologies, which is our focus today. So can you tell us a little bit more about how your work around diversifying research methods emerged? Well, I think what I'm going to say now it will probably be familiar to a lot of PhD students. So as a beginning PhD student, you're, you, know, you go through the usual motions, if you wish, right? So you need to choose an epistemological stance and, and with that also a particular methodology. And, you know, you read the right handbooks and, and the papers within the field. And obviously, um, as I'm doing my PhD at UCLIOE, we have courses. So I think the coursework is really valuable in helping you to develop a, a perspective on what's there. But early on, I felt like I was reading all this and trying to find a place in not just ep- epistemologies available, um, which in, 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 you know, the social research and the social sciences and education is very often um, rooted in social constructivism, nor could I really find a place in the different methodologies there. I felt like a lot of the methodologies are very evidence-based, very data-driven, and there's a general discourse in education that is very data-driven. I think very often students and teachers in classrooms and schools are, are reduced to to metrics and data sets, right? So I was, as I was reading all this, I just couldn't really find an approach to methodology nor a really well-carved out place for me in the you know, prevalent epistemologies. At that same time, I was doing a pilot study. So I was, I was conducting a pilot study in my school um, where my case study is based. And I also early on found that what I was doing there wasn't really following any of those, you know, available uh, methodologies. So out of me reading and not finding my place, as well as the experience of doing this pilot study, which turned out to be something completely different from what I read in handbooks, came this, yeah, this whole contemplation and reflection on what is methodology for and what is method for and what is it that I'm doing and why is it different from what's out there and is this something that can be of value not just to me here but to other people so that's in a nutshell yeah where my concerns I would say uh rooted (laughs) before you share with us what the alternative research method that you developed I think it's very interesting for us to actually think about the need to develop an alternative method. I mean, sometimes we think about, you know, our own research and we think about how to stand out, how to have our own voice. And maybe we're doing things, you know, for the sake of doing original things for the sake of being original. You know, it's not really stem. It doesn't really stem from a need. So I really like your reflection that there is a real need in your case uh, to develop an alternative uh, research method. So um, what kind of alternative research approaches have you developed? Yeah, so this is where the the conceptual and the philosophical work comes in a little bit. Um, There are two approaches, I would say, that I've developed. And what I want to say, first of all, is, is there's a bit of a tension here, I think. Um, I think you just said something really important. I think you 
first of all, you have to ask yourself, what's my purpose? What am I doing? And what methodology is fit for my purpose, I think, right? And, and so, so if there's something out there that is fit for your purpose, I don't think there's any issue with, with taking that on board. Uh, I think developing an alternative approach comes out of a concern of not finding something fit for purpose and, and therefore not settling with, I'll just take something that's out there. So the tension I was just referring to is, well, I think the idea of, of developing an alternative framework that would solve the issues that you see in other existing frameworks or approaches or methodologies is in itself problematic. Problematic. But it's inevitable, right? We need to find a way to describe what we're doing and to find a language to describe what we're doing. Um, so, so what I developed, what some people might call uh, two particular frameworks, but I do want to emphasize that what I'd like to do here is just offer something to other people and and also never give up questioning my own approach. Uh, so there's a contingent element to the things I've developed myself. Um, and so what is it? So I've done two things. I found inspiration, I would say, in the work of sociologist Ruth Levitas. And she wrote um, an extensive amount of, of she, she's done an extensive amount of work around what she termed as utopia's method. So she draws on utopian thinking to think about the world, if you wish. Obviously, she's a sociologist. So as I was reading that, I thought there's some very valuable ideas in here and possible, not just conceptual ways, but also uh, practical ways that we can conceive of doing research and education. So I adopted and adapted her utopias as method as a way to approach research methods in education. And I, I'm not going to go too much into detail. I think you can find her work fairly easily, but she starts from three modes. There's a, an archaeological mode, so historical investigation. There's an ontological mode, which I find really important, asking ontological questions. And then there's an architectural mode. So that means that your research is not just understanding a phenomenon, but actually also creating something. And I think that's where her... Um, approach or her method goes further than a lot of the methods out there. The second um, practice, I would call it, is something that I've developed myself, not out of the blue, but it it's complementary to Utopia's method. So Utopia's method helps you to structure the way you present your research. But then for me, it's very important to be able to create something from the present with other researchers and, and practitioners out there. And so there's a need, I think, to have a, a practice that allows us to create um, from the present to work towards an alternative future. So I've developed something that I've termed as punk ethnography. Now, it's not an ethnography about punk music. Um, so the reason why ethnography is in there is because I use ethnographic techniques in this work that I'm doing in, in my case with um, people in, in one school. The punk element there is because I'm drawing on um, attributes of the punk as well as the anarchist ethos to rethink how we organize ourselves um, as researchers and practitioners. So, so the, the punk ethnography element helps you to 
do the architectural work, if you wish, that Ruth Levitas uh, talks about in her work. So it's, I, I would say, to bring the two together, I think utopian thinking helps us to present and think about our research differently. Punk ethnography allows us to put a, a different set of practices into practice. Yeah, I think I think it's really interesting that you draw on both um, existing thinking and you know kind of develop your own approach based on that. So I'm interested in knowing a little bit more about how you synergize the two strands, like the utopian thinking and the punk philosophy. Yeah, I, I think utopian thinking is. So utopia, I mean, there's there's a tradition in in uh, utopian studies, a growing tradition, and there's obviously a long uh, tradition in utopian thinking, and it's a tricky space, right? Because history has shown us that utopian projects, from you know, from uh, Marxism to um, fascism and so on, can have very catastrophic um, visions of what society should look like. So I do spend quite a bit of time in 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 explaining how. I see utopia. So for me, how the role utopian thinking plays in method is it allows us to, it gives us a possibility to see the future differently, but starting from the present. So for me, utopia is a process. We work with researchers. We work with practitioners in schools. We do our research, but rather than just mirroring the issues and kind of analyzing data sets and reporting on them. I'm not saying that's not important, but that's not a project I personally get very excited about. Utopian thinking allows us to go beyond that, to create something, create something impossible because this is a never-ending project. There is no ideal society. I think there is no ideal future for education. There's no ideal future for mankind, but there are ways to do things differently. And utopian thinking, particularly in in um, Ruth Levitas's work allows us to do that work as researchers. So um, it's quite bold, right? It's, it's a bold approach to what if we ask different questions and therefore also come up with different answers? Um, and I think that's a very powerful thing to do. Um, punk then, uh, and, and, and also some notions of uh, anarchist philosophy, I think, is more of a guidance or in your practice. So when you go out into schools or whatever your, your field of study is or your field of research, if you want to go beyond collecting data and beyond observations and you actually want to get actively involved, punk and anarchy can give you a framework and a toolkit to do that. So... Again, these are two quite contested areas, right? But but to take out the positive sides of both, punk really came from this idea of let's create from now, let's bring people together who are not necessarily experts in everything that they're concerned with, but they're willing to collaborate. They're willing to also be humble about their own expertise and they're willing to maybe switch roles. So, for example, in my own work, my, I don't really have participants. I, I collaborate with people in a school. They sometimes take over the role as re, of researcher. I sometimes become a teacher in the school. So there is this boundary crossing element um, in, in how we work together. Um, and 
again that that I think that that allows for being creative starting from shared values but not necessarily having a very clear outcome or purpose in mind and and I think that's a very useful guideline if you do want to create if you do want to start from a project that is very rooted in the present the anarchist element I I'm, I will not say too much about it but for me that is centered around uh, ways of organizing oneself so not letting uh you're not not being bogged down by external bureaucracies starting from a horizontal smaller uh uh group or a horizontal um way of leadership so a distributed leadership and a small group of people uh coming together um out of a shared idea or a shared set of values so utopian thinking gives us a way to frame our research and to go beyond reporting on what's there and punk and anarchy in my case or the way i use it give us practical tools on how we can work with people whether they're researchers or practitioners and how we can do this in a rigorous way but without without starting from a very set outcome based agenda Thank you Elke that's a very comprehensive argument. Now um so so far we have discussed um the like the conceptual basis um of your alternative method and I'm going to ask this question in every uh, episode because I think our audience are very interested not only in the conceptual but at the operational level. How are we going to do research so say if I'm interested in the methodologies that you proposed Elke how do i go about doing it yeah this is a, a very good um a very good question i think i think in terms of utopia's method um it's a, it's it would give you guidance on how to structure your research so in my case i if I, when i apply it to my own case study of this one school i start by really trying to understand why the school is what it is today and and people who are familiar with the work of Foucault and and historical investigations will will be very familiar with that and i think a lot of critical theorists do very similar good work so you you're you're trying to understand why something is what it is today by looking at the present and not just at the present but also the past where does this come from the next step then is to present in your research okay so out of what i've investigated what questions what ontological questions come out of my historical digging whether it's into a curriculum or a phenomenon or or anything policy what ontological questions come out of this and which ontological questions are answered or responded to in what i've investigated and which ones are actually neglected absent or responses to questions might be problematical that would be a second thing that would be so in my case i have actually i think at the moment i think i will have several chapters in my dissertation that address the historical side and the ontological side and then ultimately the third bit is all right how can i as a researcher respond to those gaps to the ontological questions that seem to be either inappropriate or not answered or completely um neglected So you actually create something and it can be various things that can be you know creation of an alternative way to view policy in my case a view on curriculum 
It can be, uh, I don't know, uh, a pathway forward for a community and so on and so forth. So, so I think Utopia's method allows you to present your work in a way that you're contributing immediately um, and that you, you find a way to, to tell that story in a comprehensive way. Punk ethnography, well, that, that's, that's where it becomes actually challenging. So I work with one school. So I would say that this kind of approach to creating with a small group of people without a set agenda is something that would be hard to do for large-scale projects. If you work with hundreds of people across multiple institutions and spaces, I think it's, that just becomes a logistical issue. So I think people who are genuinely interested in, in the punk ethnographic approach or practice would be people who work in, a, in smaller settings, in one or two smaller places with smaller groups of people and who are comfortable with not having a set agenda. So I also already have a relationship with the school I worked with, which I think makes this easier. If you are a stranger to a place... This, you know, it, it takes time to build relationships. And I think that's one of the key components here that you, you, you there needs to be relationships of trust uh, between these people. And you've alluded to it already. Uh, I think people who want to work with their immediate communities and in, in their immediate context, I think for them, you could assume that there are already existing relationships. So this makes this easier. And then you... You know, there are time constraints. I mean, for me at the moment, the time constraint is related to my PhD. So this is a time-consuming approach. You, you work very closely and very intensely with those people. And that goes from, in my case, from setting up meetings to creating initiatives for, for teachers in the school to writing, um, you know, articles together. And there's only so much you can do. So I think... Um, there are just practical issues or, sorry, practical uh, limitations to time and how much one can do. I mean, we all have day jobs, right? I mean, teachers in the school are teaching. I'm also, you know, having a full-time uh, job. So I think that gives you an idea of the practicalities of this uh, work, um, which comes, so there's a lot of conversation, there's a lot of interviews, there's a lot of journaling. I journal as well as a as a uh, a researcher, which I think quite a few people are, are uh, familiar with, but what we do only emerges as we do it, right? So, so I'm writing up insights as I go through the various initiatives that we set up together. Um, so, I think I hope that you know, illustrating the difference between utopia as method and punk ethnography makes it clear that they're different things one is presenting your research the other one is doing work with people and there are certain i think there are certain situations where neither of them or, or one of them is is not appropriate or less yeah less feasible i think one point that that you mentioned i was quite interested uh, for you to elaborate a little bit more. So you mentioned about how you worked with uh, the practitioners, the teachers in the school. And you mentioned earlier that um, usually the researchers assume the responsibility of conducting research and the practitioners, they are the participants of the research. But I think in your thinking, the roles of the researched and the researcher, uh, I mean, it's more fluid yeah. than 
what we used to think. Or can you elaborate on this a little bit more? Yes. So, so a very specific example, as I go into this particular school, um, obviously I, I did do a series of classroom observations when I did my pilot study, but then slowly students started to ask me questions and teachers were getting, you know, me involved in the classroom. And I actually ended up teaching a series of lessons uh, in that initial phase, but also actually fairly recently. So I am researching a particular curriculum in that school, but I'm becoming a teacher of that curriculum. So at that moment, I, I, it's not like I, I no longer am a researcher, but my principal role at that moment is teacher. So that's a very specific example. Another example then for the practitioner. So there's one practitioner. I mean, there, there are a number of people I work with in the school, but it's a small group. I think I would say that there's about five or six people that I work very, very closely with, uh, very regularly. And with two of them, I'm currently writing uh, uh, um, an, a, a journal article. So, so they are they are bringing in the practitioner's perspective, but mixed with you know academic readings and trying to support their views um, through um, yeah the literature out there, which is something they would probably normally not do. So they they start developing this researcher view that they might not do otherwise. Another example is when I so I've developed this way of looking at curriculum and I had extensive discussions with um two or three teachers in the school around around this so my view on curriculum is obviously rooted in in my uh, own thinking but also the responses i got from them and i how they view curriculum so so those are two examples that i think help to understand how these roles can switch i think you mentioned about the challenges you face when you conduct uh, such kind of research, for example, like time and the size of your project. So maybe I will just end our conversation with this final question. So do you have any specific advice for doctoral candidates or PhD candidates? How do you think they can diversify their research method perspectives? And I think it's a big decision for PhD candidates because they are not just doing whatever research they like. It's quite high stakes, if I may. So why do you think it's important for them to think about diversifying their research methods? I think that the question, and I, I've said this before, is what is your purpose, right? What, what is the purpose of your research? Not just what it is that what is it that I'm doing, but why am I doing it? And, and the best way to go about achieving your purpose and, and responding to your why is not just finding the right content, but also the right approach, the right method. So I think that is a very important question. And I think having those conversations with um, your supervisor or your supervisors is really important. And I think, I mean, that's not a new uh, piece of advice, right? I think having those conversations with supervisors, but also, sh you know, being honest to them and saying, I don't really know where to start or I'm not really sure if what is there, what you're telling me that I should be looking into is actually doing the work I think it should be doing for me. So I think those honest conversations with supervisors are really important. 
And to connected to that, then I think it's it's important to not crowbar your work into a methodology just to follow a particular methodology. I think, and there again, I think the supervisor plays a really important role. If they push you in a particular direction and you feel like you have no choice, that can become a real burden and a real, sometimes a real counterproductive thing to do. Um, so I think speaking up and, and justifying why you think a particular approach or methodology is not necessarily the right one for you and maybe, yeah, exploring with your supervisors how you can mix maybe or, or combine several approaches, I think is a very good place to start. The, the main thing that I take away from my conversation with you, in addition to the new notions that you introduced, um, is the fact that, you know, methodology is more than just an instrument. It's more than just a thing that we pick from our toolkit to serve a purpose. It's really uh, a whole process, whole journey reflecting on, for example, I, our identities as researchers, you know, what research means to us uh, and what we want to achieve uh, by doing our own research. So I think it, it's really, really useful. And I'm sure our audience would find it very useful. So thank you so much, Elki, for sharing with us. So I'll be seeing all of you next time, hopefully for episode three, and we'll have some more speakers to share their alternative research methods for us. And I hope you are enjoying this series and I look forward to seeing everybody next time.